0: Chapters three and four of the Pawn's Count by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This Liebervach recording is in the public domain, recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter three Pamela, after a brief conversation with her friends, once more left the restaurant. In the lobby she called Ferranny to her. Has Mr Fisher gone for Rani? she asked. Not two minutes ago, the man replied. You wish to speak to him? i can stop him even now she shook her head on the contrary she said dryly mr fisher represents a type of my countryman of whom i am not very fond he is a great patron of yours is he not he is a large shareholder in the company Ferrani confessed then your restaurant will prosper she told him mr fisher has the name of being very fortunate that was a wonderful luncheon you gave us to-day madame is very kind will you do me a favor ferrani's gesture was all expressive words were entirely superfluous i want two addresses please first the address of joseph your head musician and secondly the address of hassan your coffee maker ferrani effectually concealed any surprise he might have felt he tore a page from his pocketbook. both i know he declared hassan lodges at a shop eighty yards away the name is Haines, and there are newspaper placards outside the door. "'That is quite enough,' Pamela murmured. "'As for Monsieur Joseph,' Herrani continued, "'that is a different matter. He has, I understand, a small flat in Tower Mansions, Tower Street, leading off the Edgware Road. The number is 18C, so?' He wrote it down and passed it to her. Pamela thanked him and stood up. "'Now that I have done as you asked me,' ferrani concluded, let me add the word both these men are already off duty and have left the restaurant if you wish to communicate with either of them i advise you to do so by letter you are a very courteous gentleman mr ferrani pamela declared dropping him a little mock curtsy and good morning she made her way into the street outside shook her head to the commissaire's upraised whistle and strolled along until she came to a cross street down which several motor cars were waiting she approached one a very handsome limousine and checked the driver who would have sprung from his seat george she said i'm going to pay a call at a disreputable looking news shop just where i am pointing you can't bring the car there as the street is too narrow you might follow me on foot and be about the young man touched his hat and obeyed a few yards down the street pamela found her destination and entered a gloomy little shop a slatternly woman looked at her curiously from behind the counter i am told that hassan lodges here the coffee-maker from henry's pamela began the woman looked at her in a peculiar fashion well i wish to see him you can't then was the curt answer he's at his prayers at what pamela exclaimed at his prayers the woman repeated brusquely there she added Throwing open the door which led into the premises behind. Can't you hear him, poor soul? He's been pinching some more charms from ladies' bracelets or something of the sort, I reckon. He's always in trouble. He goes on like this for an hour or so and then he forgives himself. Pamela stood by the open door and listened. Listened to a strange wailing chant which rose and fell with almost weird monotony. Very interesting, she observed. I have heard that sort of thing before. Now, "'Will you kindly tell Hassan that I wish to speak to him, or shall I go and find him for myself?' "'Well, you've got some brass,' the woman declared with a sneer. "'And some gold,' Pamela assented, passing a pound-note over to the woman. "'Do you want to see him alone?' the latter asked, almost snatching at the note, but still regarding Pamela, with distrustful curiosity. "'Of course,' was the calm reply. The woman opened her lips and closed them again, sniffed and led the way down a short passage, at the end of which was a door. "'There you are,' she muttered, throwing it open. "'You're arse for it, mine. Tain't my business.' She slouched her way back again to the shop. At first Pamela could scarcely see anything except a dark figure on his knees before a closed and shrouded window. Then she saw Hassan rise to his feet, saw the glitter of his eyes. "'Pull up the blind, Hassan,' she directed. He came a step nearer to her. The gloom in the apartment was extraordinary. Only his shape and his eyes were visible. Do as I tell you, she ordered. Pull up the blind. It will be better. He hesitated, then he obeyed. Even then the interior of the room seemed shadowy and obscure. Pamela could only see, in contrast with the rest of the house, that it was wonderfully and spotlessly clean. In one corner, barely concealed by a low screen, his bed stood upon the floor. Hassan muttered something in an Oriental tongue. Pamela interrupted him. She spoke in the soothing tone one uses towards a child. "'That's all right, Hassan," she said. "'Sorry to have interrupted you at your prayers, but it had to be done. "'You know me?' "'Yes, mistress,' he answered unwillingly. "'I your dragon-man one year in Cairo. What do you want here, mistress?' "'You know that I know,' she went on, "'that you are a Turk and a Mohammedan, and not an egyptian at all yes mistress you know that he muttered and you also know she continued that if i give you away to the authorities you will be sent at once to a very uncomfortable internment camp where you won't even have an opportunity to wash more than once a day where you will have to herd with all sorts of people who will make fun of your color and your religion don't mistress he shouted suddenly you will not tell i think you will not tell He was sidling a little towards her. Again one of those curious changes seemed to have transformed him from a dumb, passive creature into a savage. There was menace in his eyes. She waved him back without moving. "'I have come to make a bargain with you, Hassan," she said. "'Just a few words, that is all. Not quite so near, please.' He paused. There was a moment's silence. His face was within a foot of hers, lowering black bestial her eyes met his without a tremor her full sweet lips only curved into a faintly contemptuous line you cannot frighten me hassan she declared no man has ever done that and outside i have a chauffeur with muscles of iron who waits for me be reasonable listen there are secrets connected with your restaurant i know nothing he began at once nothing mistress nothing quite naturally she continued I only need one piece of information. A man disappeared there this morning. I just have to find him. That's all there is to it. At half-past one he was inveigled into the musician's room and by some means or other rendered unconscious. At three o'clock he had been removed. I want to know what became of him. You help me, and the whole world can believe you to be an Egyptian for the rest of their lives. If you can't help me, it is rather unfortunate for you. "'because I shall tell the police at once who and what you are.' "'Don't waste time, Hassan.' He stood thinking, rubbing his hands and bowing before her, yet, as she knew very well, with murder in his heart. Once she saw his long fingers raised a little. "'Quite useless, Hassan,' she warned him. "'They hang you in England, you know, for any little trifle, such as you are thinking of. Be sensible, and I may even leave a few pound-notes behind me mistress should ask joseph he muttered i know nothing oh mistress is going to ask joseph all right she assured him but i want a little information from you too you've got to earn your freedom you know hassan come what do they do with the people who disappear from the restaurant not understand was the almost piteous reply pamela sighed she had again the air of one being patient with a child see here hassan she went on A few days ago I went over that restaurant from top to bottom with the manager. There is the musician's room, isn't there, just over the entrance hall? I suppose those little glass places in the floor are movable, and then one can hear every word that is spoken below. I am right so far. Am I not? Hassan answered nothing. His breathing, however, had become a little deeper. An unsuspecting person, passing from the toilet rooms upstairs, could easily be induced to enter i think that there must be another exit from that room yes yes hassan faltered to where the wine cellars and from there hassan was suddenly voluble truth unlocked his tongue not no mistress not know another thing no one enters wine cellar but three men one of those not know. if i guess i hassan i look at little chapel left standing in waste place perhaps i wonder sometimes but i not know pamela drew three notes from her gold purse smoothed them out and handed them over three pounds hassan silence and good day you'll live longer if you open your window now and then and get a little fresh air instead of praying yourself hoarse again the black figure swayed perilously towards her she affected not to notice not to notice the hand which seemed for a moment as though it would snatch the door-handle from her grasp. She passed out pleasantly and without haste. The last sound she heard was a groan. "'Done your bit of business, eh?' the landlady asked curiously. Pamela nodded assent. "'Rather an odd sort of lodger for you, isn't he?' "'Not so odd as his visitors,' the woman retorted, with an evil sneer. Pamela passed into the narrow street and drew a long sigh of relief. Then she entered her car and gave the chauffeur an address from the slip of paper which she carried in her hand. When they stopped outside the little block of flats he prepared to follow her. "'Tough neighbourhood this, madame,' he said. "'Maybe, George,' she replied, waving him back. "'But you've got to stay down here. If the man I am going to see thought I was frightened of him, I wouldn't have a chance. If I am not down in half an hour, you can try number 18C.' The chauffeur resumed his place on the driving seat of the car. Pamela, heartily disliking her surroundings, was escorted by a shabby porter to a shabbier lift. you will find Mr. Joseph in,' the lift boy assured her with a grin. Pamela found the number at the end of an unswept stone passage. At her third summons the door was cautiously opened by a large, repulsive-looking woman with a mass of peroxidized hair. She stared at her visitor first in amazement then in rapidly gathering resentment. Mr. Joseph is at home, she admitted truculently in response to Pamela's inquiry. What might you be wanting with him? If you would be so good as to let me in, I will explain to Mr. Joseph, Pamela replied. The woman seemed on the point of slamming the door. Suddenly there was a voice from behind her shoulder. Joseph appeared. Not the smiling, joyous Joseph of Henry's, but a sullen-looking Negro, dressed in shirt and trousers only, with a heavy underlip and frowning forehead, let the lady pass and get into the kitchen. Nora, he ordered, "Come this way, ma'am." Pamela followed her guide into a parlor redolent of stale cigar smoke, with oilcloth on the floor and varnished walls—an abode even more horrible than Hassan's lair. Joseph closed the door carefully behind him and made no apology for his disabille he simply faced pamela say what is it you want with me he demanded truculently a trifle she answered the key of the chapel in the little plot of waste ground next henry's she meant him to be staggered and he was he reeled back for a moment what the hell are you talking about he gasped facts pamela replied do you want to save yourself joseph you can do it if you choose he folded his arms and stood in front of the closed door without a collar his neck bulged unpleasantly behind there was nothing whatever left of the suave and genial chef d'orchestre save yourself from what eh just let me get wise about it pamela's eyebrows were daintily elevated dear me she murmured i thought you were more intelligent listen you know where we met last let me remind you you were playing in the winter garden at berlin and the gentleman whom i was with an attaché at the American Embassy, spoke to you. He told me a good deal about your past life, Joseph, and your present one. You are in the pay of the Secret Service of Germany. Am I to go to Scotland Yard and tell them so?' He looked at her wickedly. "'You'd have to get out of here 1st "'Don't be silly,' she advised him contemptuously. "'Remember you're talking to an American woman, and don't waste your breath. You can be in the Secret Service of any country you like.' without interference from me. On the other hand, there's just one thing I want from you. What is it? I haven't got any key. I want to discover exactly what has become of Captain Graham,' she declared. "'What, the guy that missed his lunch today?' he growled. "'I see you know all about it,' she continued equably. "'So he's your spark, is he?' Joseph observed slowly, his eyes blinking as he leaned a little forward. "'On the contrary,' Pamela replied. "'I have never met him. However, that's beside the point. Do I have the key of that chapel?' "'You do not.' "'Have you got it?' "'Right here,' Joseph assented, dangling it before her eyes. "'I think it's a fair bargain I'm offering you,' she reminded him. "'You lose the key and keep your place. You have only to keep your mouth shut and nothing happens.' "'Nothing doing,' the negro declared shortly. "'Keys as important as this ain't lost.' If I part with it I get the chuck, and I probably get into the same mess as the others. If I keep it—' If you keep it, Pamela interrupted, you will probably stand with your back to the light in the tower within the next few days. They've left off being lenient with spies over here. He looked at her, and there were things in his eyes which few women in the world could have seen without terror. Pamela's lips only came a little closer together. She pressed the inside of the ring upon her third finger an array of green fire seemed to shoot forward i guess i'm up against it he growled taking a step forward i'll have something of what's coming to me if i swing for it his arm was suddenly around her his face hideously close he gave a little snarl as he felt the pin-prick through his shirt-sleeve then he went spinning round and round with his hand to his head what in god's name he spluttered what in hell he reeled against the horsehair easy-chair had slipped onto the floor. Pamela calmly closed her ring, stooped over him, withdrew the key from his pocket, crossed the room and the dingy little hall with swift footsteps, and, without waiting for the lift, fled down the stone steps. Before she reached the bottom she heard the shrill ringing of the lift-bell, the angry shouting of the woman. Pamela, however, strolled quietly out and took her place in the car. "'Back to the hotel, George,' she directed the chauffeur don't stop if they call to you from the flats the young man sprang up to his seat and the car glided off pamela leaned forward and looked at herself in the mirror there was a shade more color in her face perhaps than usual but her low waves of chestnut hair were unruffled she used her powder puff with attentive skill and leaned back that's the disagreeable part of it over anyway she sighed to herself contentedly chapter three chapter four the last of the supper guests had left henry's restaurant the commissar's whistle was silent the light laughter and frivolous adieu of the departing guests seemed to have melted away into the world somewhere beyond the pale of the unseasonable fog the little strip of waste ground adjoining was wrapped in gloom and silence the exterior of the bare and deserted chapel long since unconsecrate, was dull and lifeless inside however began the march of strange things First of all the pinprick of light of a tiny electric torch seemed as though it had risen from the floor, and Hassan, pushing back a trap-door, stepped into the bare, dusty conventicle. He listened for a moment, then made a tour of the windows, touched the spring in the wall, and drew down long, thick blinds. Afterwards he passed between the row of dilapidated benches and paused at the entrance door. He stooped down, examined the keyless lock, shook it gently gazed upwards and downwards as though in vain search of bolts that were never there. His white teeth gleamed for a moment in the darkness. He turned away with a little shiver. Not my fault, he muttered to himself. Not my fault. He listened for a moment intently, as though for footsteps outside. The disturbance, however, came from the other end of the building. There was a sharp knocking from the trap-door by which he had ascended. He touched an electric knob. The place was dimly yet sufficiently illuminated. He hastened towards the further end of the place and pulled up the trap-door. A melancholy-looking little procession slowly emerged. First of all came Joseph, stepping backwards, supporting the head and shoulders of Graham, still bound and gagged. After him came a dark, swarthy-faced wine-waiter, who supported Graham's feet. Behind followed Fisher, carrying his silk hat and cane in his hand. He paused for a moment as he stepped on the floor of the chapel and brushed the dust from his trousers. "'You can take out the gag now,' he ordered the two men. "'There isn't much shout in him.' They laid him upon a couch, and Joseph obeyed the order. Graham's head swung helplessly on one side. His eyes opened, however, and he struggled for consciousness. His lips twitched for a moment. In these long hours he had almost forgotten the habit of speech. The words, when they came sounded strange to him what where am i what do you want with me fisher laid his hat and stick upon a table on which also stood a telephone instrument the formula my young friend he replied for that wonderful explosive of which you spoke in the lobby a sudden accession of nervous strength brought something almost like passion into the young man's reply although to himself there still seemed some unreality in the words which might have come from the walls or the roof, surely not from his lips. I'll see you damned first. Fisher smiled. The man was good-looking in his way, but this was a pale and ugly smile. My request was merely a matter of courtesy, he remarked. The difficulty of searching you is not formidable. It would have been undertaken long ago, but for the fact that the restaurant has been crowded, and gags sometimes slip. Besides, there was no hurry. Observe," he leaned over Graham, who for the first time struggled furiously but ineffectually with his bonds. His fingers all the time were straining towards the inside pocket of his coat. Fisher nodded understandingly. "Allow me to anticipate you," he said. With a quick thrust, he drew a little handful of papers from the pocket of his captive. One by one, he glanced them through and flung them onto the floor. As he came towards the end of his search, however his expression of confident complacency vanished his lips shriveled up a little his eyes narrowed the last folded sheet of paper a little perfumed note from peggy thanking sandy for his beautiful roses he crumpled fiercely into a little ball he opened his lips to speak then he paused a new light broke in upon him the fury had passed from sandy graham's face in its stead there was an expression of blank astonishment where is the formula Fisher asked fiercely. There was no reply. Sandy Graham was still staring at the little pile of papers upon the floor. Fisher made a brief examination of the other pockets. Then he stepped back. His voice shook. His face was dark and malevolent. Joseph, Hassan, Jules, listen to me, he ordered. Did anyone else enter the musician's room whilst he was lying in the alcove? Impossible, Jules declared. The door was locked, Hassan murmured. Stop joseph exclaimed fisher wheeled round upon him well he exclaimed get on then who joseph moistened his lips he was still feeling sore and dizzy but he began to see his way you notice perhaps he said the american girl the beautiful young lady with this guy's friends she was waiting with the others for captain graham to come down i saw her go up the stairs i saw her come down again three minutes later miss van tail fisher exclaimed with a frown you're mad, Joseph. The negro laughed grimly. Am I? he retorted. I tell you this, Master Fisher. She was in Berlin where I was, and she was at the embassy every day. She was asked to leave there. They put her over the frontier into Holland. I knew her when she came into the restaurant. She's no society young lady she ain't. Bet you she was on to the goods. Fisher hesitated for a moment. The thoughts were chasing one another through his brain. Then he took up the receiver from the telephone instrument, which stood upon the table. Fifteen sixty Mayfair, he asked in a low tone. They all stood listening, grouped around Graham's writhing figure. Hello, is that Claridge's Hotel? Fisher went on. I am speaking from Gyros. Put me through, if you please, to Miss Van Teyl's apartments. What? Repeat that, will you? Thank you. Fisher laid down the receiver. He turned towards the others. He was breathing a little quickly, and his eyes glittered behind his gold-rimmed spectacles. "'Miss Van Tail,' he announced, "'has left for Tilbury. She is going out on the Lapland this morning. My God, she's got the formula!' There was a moment's silence. Joseph was standing by with a wicked look on his face. "'I saw her slip away,' he muttered, "'and I watched her come down again. There was just time.' Fisher turned suddenly to where Graham was lying he drew a sheet of writing-paper from the rack upon the table and a pencil from his pocket there was an evil and concentrated significance in his tone the formula he said can be written again i think you had better write it i'll see you damned first was the weak but prompt reply Fisher bent a little lower over the prostrate figure look here he went on we don't run risks like this for nothing you're better dead than alive, so far as we are concerned. Anyway, we'd planned to take the formula from you, and you can guess the rest. There are cellars underneath here into which no one ever goes. Who matters? Now here's a chance of life for you. Write down that formula truthfully, mind, and we'll discuss the matter of taking your parole. See you damned first, Graham. Repeated his voice a little more tremulous, but still convincing. Fisher stood upright and turned to Jules, get me a bottle of brandy and a glass he ordered the man pushed open the trap-door and disappeared he came back again in a few moments with the bottle in one hand and a glass in the other fisher poured out some of the cordial and drew a small table up to graham's side there he said loosening the cord around his left wrist drink that and think it over we shall be gone for about ten minutes if you change your mind before ring that little handbell. If you have not changed your mind when we return, it will be the cellar's. Beasts! Graham muttered. Fisher shrugged his shoulders. For a moment he had straightened himself. His face had softened, but it was in tune with his thoughts. "'I would twist the necks of a million fools like you,' he said, for the sake of—he paused, leaving his sentence uncompleted, and beckoned to the other men— they followed him through the trap door and down into the cellars below. The place was once more silent. Graham rolled from side to side, drew a long breath, and tugged vainly at his bonds. The effort overtaxed his strength. He seemed to feel the darkness closing in upon him, the rushing of the sea in his ears. Chapter Four. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's